Uh, I thought I might actually just start together in prayer. As I was in worship and we were singing the song, God reigns above it all, um, I just got the sense that there might be people in the room for whom that just seems like a distant reality. Um, maybe a truth in a room with the door locked. Life might be hard, things might be testing. Um, and I just felt it on my heart just to pray. God doesn't promise an easy life. We don't believe that. But he does promise to be with us. And so I just want to pray right now for those of us in the community that maybe life's just really hard. And I pray that God would be present with you. And so let me pray for you. And if that's you, I just invite you, open your hands on your lap, open your palms to the heavens and just invite God just to minister to you meet you where you're at. Father God, thank you that you're both big but near, transcendent but imminent, the King in glory but also our Father on whose lap we're invited to sit and know and be known. I pray for those in our community right now, Father, that are doing it tough, that are struggling that feel your distance and maybe your absence. And I just want to ask on their behalf, Lord, what are you doing in this moment? And I want to intercede, Father, that you might be present with them where they're at. Lord, we don't want you to be an idea that we examine at arm's length. We want to know your touch. We want to feel your reality. And so, Holy Spirit, be near with us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want someone to pray with you after the service, there'll be people over to my right, your left, that would love to just join with you and talk with God with you. And so feel free to do that at the end of the service. Um, I heard a fact recently. One of my friends from Canada was preaching, and he shared this illustration that I thought I might kick off with. Uh, one of the things that's quite amazing is the sequoia redwood trees on the west coast of California. They're some of the biggest in the world. They can weigh up to 500 tons, they can go to about 350 feet high, and they're incredibly durable. These things, they withstand earthquakes, floods, winds, a whole host of things. Some of the biggest in the world, and they withstand all of these things. And here's the question, how do they withstand such trial, such downpour, such tremor, such tumult? How do they survive? And People would usually answer this question when they're talking about other trees by referring to deep root systems. The deeper the root system of a tree, the more stable it is, and then it can grow higher and withstand greater things in this world, all the elements. Um, but for the redwoods in California, the, the roots, they only go down like 6 to 12 feet. So you take a tree that's 350 feet high, and you observe a root system that only goes down 6 to 12 feet, and you ask the question, well, how do they stabilize? When the winds come, the storms come, why do they flourish and grow to be some of the biggest and heaviest trees in the world? And one of the things that they found is that the root system, although it doesn't go down deep, it goes wide. And on top of going wide, they intermingle with all the other root systems of all the other redwood trees. Redwood trees flourish because they grow together. Last week, Lauren preached on discipleship and the cost of discipleship. She reminded us of this line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
man who was persecuted for the faith that he held in the face of social Nazism in the 1940s. And he had this beautiful line. He said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him or her to come and die. That's the journey of discipleship. Not self-expression, but self-denial. Not self-service, but self-giving. That we, over time, and in the community of God, might become more like Jesus. But as we explore what it means to be a disciple, I wanted to guard us against something. I want to guard us against the sense that this journey is an individual one. It's not. The call to discipleship is a call to community. It's a call to the family of God. It's a call to grow in Jesus' likeness, to grow together in a community in which you are known and in which you know, in which you frustrate and in which you are frustrated, but ultimately one in which you are loved and one that you love yourself. Some of the largest trees in the world flourish because they grow in intertwining relationship with one another. And it's the same for the Christian. The call of discipleship can only be outworked in the context of community. So I want to unpack today the scriptures and invite us into this community. And I want to do so by going through Romans 12, a chapter and a letter in the New Testament that Paul uses to exhort Christians to become this beautiful vision, which you'll see at the very end. And I want to just raise two brief points to do it. One, the ingredients we need, sorry, two ingredients we need to be the community that God calls us to be. One, a deeper bond. And two, a realistic evaluation. So one, a deeper bond. When you hear the word community, what do you think of? When you hear the word group or family, what comes to mind? Some of you are thinking of the TV show from NBC, what is it, NBC? Famous TV show with um, like friends that all gather together at a community college and they've got this shared mission to basically pass the test. It's a pretty low bar for what a community exists for, but they're doing it. Some of you are thinking of community. In the West, most of us usually struggle to conceptualize what a community is. And that's because in the West, we prioritize the individual. I don't know if you know this. We prioritize the individual. What is primary for the Western culture is the individual's pursuit of happiness, pleasure, freedom, preferences, and ambition. And sociologists have called this radical individualism. Just to break it down, take the word radical, you know, it's a word that sociologists use to describe those who've maybe given themselves over uncritically to an ideology or an idea. You're radical about it. To be radical about something is to treat it as the primary thing at the expense of all others. It's not to value something. It's, it's to treat it as the primary thing at the expense of all others. That's radical. And individualism, well, that's the core idea, that the primary thing about human life is the individual. Radical individualism is the culture which says that the most important thing in this world is me, myself, and I. My preferences, my freedoms, my desires, my goals. It's this sense of autonomy. Autos, from the Greek word, meaning self. Nomos, meaning law. A law unto yourself. This sort of captain of your own ship at the expense of all the other ships out at sea. For a more, I don't know, like... Disney uh, worldview illustration, think of the words of Elsa, right? The philosopher Elsa, bless her heart. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. 
I memorized that before I memorized the scripture we're preaching on tonight. (laughs) But it's this sense that what's primary is the individual at the expense of the community, the family, the larger vision of a group of people. Now, on one level, just hear me, individualism's a good thing. We should value independent thought. We should value, to a degree, financial freedom. If you want help, read Scott Pape, the barefoot investor, can recommend. If you bought a house, you're years ahead of me, so all fine. We should value things that individualism brings, what it tries to protect, but when you make it ultimate, at the expense of other things, it decays community. It changes what community can become, which is why I did a quick Google the other day, just for like a, you know, layman's dictionary definition of what community is. And the going definition of community is this. It's a collection of individuals with a common interest. Now, the problem with this is it's a very fragile definition of community. Why? Because what if your interests change? What if the interests of those who are in the community change? You realize very quickly that it's not a community, but it's a group of individuals who are there to serve their interests. Is that not the case? It's a very fragile definition of community. When your interests change, you don't actually need to invest in the relationship of the person who's in front of you. Why? Because it doesn't serve your individuality. It's a very fragile definition of community. So here's the question. What is community? And here's the question for us as Christians. What's the vision that God has for the community of the church? Paul answers that question for us in verse 1 of Romans 12. If you've got your Bibles with you, feel free just to open up that passage. Spend a bit of time there. We'll walk through it slowly but surely. And we'll get a vision of what this community could be and where we're at now. Romans 12, verse 1. Let me read the first half for you. And Paul says this. This is going to feel like I'm not finishing the sentence, and truth be told, I'm not. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters. Let me pause. I don't know if you know how radical this language is. Brothers and sisters. Is Paul writing to his family? No, not his blood relatives. Is Paul writing to people who think of themselves as relatives in Rome? No. Paul's just writing to house churches in Rome, most of whom, if not all of whom, he's not related to. And he calls them brothers and sisters. And he doesn't call them, hey, you know, you collection of individuals. He doesn't say, hey, you group with common interests. He says, family. And this is not unusual language for the Bible. The word here is adelphos in the Greek, and it's used 317 times in the New Testament and 127 times in Paul's letters. And get this, it is the primary way that Paul understands what the church is. The idea of family is the dominant metaphor through which God's people are understood in the New Testament. How? Well, Paul's got this crazy idea that what God has done in Jesus Christ has meant that there's now this worldwide family with a crazily inclusive criteria for entry that's opened up to anyone who dares and dreams and wants to follow after Jesus. Jesus is, in the language of the New Testament, the brother. 
the older brother in the family of the church. God is the father of the family of the church. It's this idea of adoption. And here's the cool thing about adoption, that you don't need to be anything special to be adopted into God's family. You don't have to come from the right background. You don't have to have the right social status. You don't have to have the right bank account. You don't even have to have the right moral checklist ticked off before the face of God. You just need to come. What God has done in Jesus Christ has made it possible that anyone, no matter matter their background, no matter where they're going, can be adopted into God's family with a new community around them and a new heavenly father that relativizes all other earthly relationships, that throws you into this community. We're not only children of God, we are now family. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book. It's a different book to the one that Lauren quoted last week. And it's sort of like a classic on the idea of community in the church. It's called Life Together. And it's an exploration of what Christian community is and what Christian community should be. And in there, he argues that this is the starting point. Whenever you come to church on a Sunday, whenever you go to small group throughout the week, whenever you think about getting involved in the life of this community, this is the starting point. Think of each of yourselves as adopted because of what Jesus has done. He puts it like this. He says, Christian brotherhood, he's writing in the 1940s, so insert sisterhood there if you wanted to. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly for eternity. Here's what this means. It means that none of us here need to be family in the biological sense to have a vested interest in each other's lives. None of us here. None of us here need to have a biological relation with one another in order for us to experience this metaphor as reality. Each of us know how fundamental our biological family is to us. The family you come from, it shows us who you are, and it gives us a picture of who you're becoming, and everything that you experience in the family that you grew up in sets such a trajectory for your life. Not one that's unchangeable, but one that has a a huge influence on you. Your family is so fundamental to who you are. And here's what Paul says. There's a new one. There is a new family that God invites each of us to be a part of. And it's got your back. It's got a vested interest in who you are and who you're becoming. That's right. This is good news. Part of the Christian story is not just the good news that we're reconciled with God. That is life-changing. It's also that the horizontal relationships of which we're a part are completely transformed because we've got a new family. Let me get really practical. What does this mean for our local church? One, I think it means that we participate more meaningfully. It means that we participate more meaningfully. See, families have each other's back. They go out of their way for one another. They serve one another in costly ways. When there are major events, guess who's there? Family. When there's things to mourn, guess who's there? Family's there. When there's things that are worth celebrating, who's right there? Family's there. When there is all these things, family is there. Why? Because that's what family does. Now, we are a family by metaphor. 
But God wants us to experience family more and more fully. As time goes on, with great intentionality, he wants us to experience the sense of family more and more fully. But to get there, there's actually a level of intentionality and participation and commitment that we each need to make. See, in individualistic culture, it wants to say and form us into people who spectate and consume and sit back and relax and don't participate. But family, everyone gets in. Everyone washes the dishes. Everyone enjoys one another's company. Why? Because that's what family is. So here's the question that each of us need to ask. How is God inviting you to participate in this family? That's a great question. You can ask that tomorrow morning when you wake up. It doesn't have to be a Sunday thing. How is God inviting you to participate in this family? Here's the encouragement. This is a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to read it. The more meaningfully we participate in the life of this church, the life of this church grows into something more meaningful. The more meaningfully we participate in the life of this church, the life of this church grows into something more meaningful. Let me quote Nutrigrain ads for you. You get out what you put in. I felt like no one really knew where I was going with that point. But you do, you get out what you put in. Participate more meaningfully. Second, you love more freely. See, ultimately, family is a vision of love, family love, and intimacy. But in individualistic culture, it's going to be really hard to experience that sense of love and intimacy in that kind of culture. Why? Well, the thing that I've learned, and it just took me to get married to learn this, is that intimacy and independence, they're in competition with one another. It's really hard to grow in intimacy when you want to be independent. It, autonomy and love, they're not hands that fit well together. They're in competition. And in individualistic culture, we're trained, we're formed, we're shaped, we're oriented to be people who prize our individuality at the expense of love and at the expense of community. So what's it going to take in an individualistic culture to experience family as a church? It's going to cost. It's going to cost the one thing we've been trained, whether we want to or not, to hold dear. It's going to cost us our love. It's going to cost us our time. It might cost us our finances. It's going to cost our very selves. Why? Because the family that God's building in his church is worth it. You only get out what you put in. When you realize that the bond God has created in Jesus to make this possible, this is the only thing that makes sense. We need to understand the bond that God has given us. And this is the call of discipleship, that God will work out in community. The call of discipleship, I said it before, it's not self-expression, it's self-denial. It's not self-serving, it's self-giving. It's saying, hey, I'm here for the flourishing of this family, even if that costs me sometimes. So what do we do with this deeper bond of an ingredient that we have for community? One, means we participate more meaningfully, and two, we love more freely. Second, we need a realistic evaluation. What do I mean? I love in this passage 
that the Apostle Paul is a realist. I really like realists. Sometimes I like to be a visionary, but I need to know where I'm at. And Paul gives us that. Most of Romans 12, it's filled with exhortation to do what is good. He says things like, honor one another, do what is right, think of yourselves more high, don't think of yourselves more highly, love what is good, all those kinds of things. And the question is, why does Paul have to say that? Now, I don't know about you, but usually someone tells me to do the right thing in the context of me having done the wrong thing. They say, Alex, you need to be a better husband than that. They say, Alex, I'd appreciate if you paid more attention in conversation than you currently do with me. They say, Alex, and they give me all these positive visions to go towards, but they have to do so because what I currently am is not that to which I'm being encouraged to go. And Paul does the exact same thing in all of his letters. In fact, most of Paul's letters, particularly the book of Corinthians, they're actually letters written in response to situations that Paul needs to speak into. And if you were to ask the question, I like this thought experiment, if there was nothing wrong with the people to whom Paul wrote, how much of our New Testament would we have left? I reckon half. Like, have you read the book of Corinthians? He's just, ta- he's just tackling on things, like one thing after the other. He's just saying, guys, you've just got it wrong here. Stop being divisive. Stop following after people as if they're God. It's not the way of Jesus. Half the New Testament, I reckon, would dissolve. Good thought experiment. But in this passage... Paul's got a very realistic picture of the kinds of people that he's talking to. He's not writing to perfect people. He's writing to people who fail from time to time. He's writing to people who hurt each other from time to time. And let's just pause and acknowledge this for a moment. Paul's evaluation of his letter recipients is realistic. Now, why is this important to acknowledge? It's important because all of the beautiful vision we have for community still needs to outwork itself in a very broken people. Think about it. And if you're not prepared for that, then you're setting yourself up for failure. See, it's really easy to rush through this passage, which I'm going to read at the very end of this sermon. It's really easy to rush through this passage and get really excited about this vision to which Paul calls us, this idea of community. You can get quite romantic about it, Imagine this, a group of people who they genuinely care about each other. They really want the best for one another. They're prepared to sacrifice some of the things most dear to them for the sake of the others flourishing. That's a romantic idea. But if you run too far with that without getting a realistic picture of where they're currently at, and here's what's going to happen. You go to small group, and you'll find that this guy, Alex, is always late. Maybe you run a small group, and you prepare And then you get those last-minute texts from the three or four young adults, and they're like, I'm so sorry, big week. And they tap out. Or I don't want to look at too many small group leaders as I say that. (laughs) You arrive on Sunday only to feel like you're unseen and unrecognized, and no one knows your story and no one cares to ask. Or you're in conversation with that person who they just don't know how to ask you questions, like you're really good at asking them questions. And I promise I'm not just going through my hit list of things that frustrate me. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Someone's just like genuinely immature and they fail you again and again and again. And you wonder, is this all real? Does this really matter? I'm so sick of it, maybe I should just quit. If you don't have a realistic expectation for the community that you find yourself in, you set yourself up for failure. And the community you set out to grow in 
becomes the thing which turns you away from God. Now, this is the thing that breaks my heart the most, because I hate that people would use Christians as an excuse to run away from Jesus Christ. Gandhi said it well when he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Maybe some of you here today have thought, man, this is the last chance that I'm ever going to give the church, and if they fail me, then I'm done with this Jesus thing. Maybe you think the church stinks, they don't practice what they preach. And I just want to say three brief things to each of you today. The first is, let Paul's realism resonate with you. Let it license you to mourn. You're not alone in being disappointed by the church. Your story, it might feel unique, but I want to encourage you, it might not be unique. Many people have been hurt by those who claim to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul, literally the most prolific writer of the New Testament, he has a very sober judgment of what the church is. So let Paul's vision, his assessment, his evaluation, let it license you to grieve what you've actually experienced. Second, don't judge Jesus by Christians. Judge Christians by Jesus. The writer Tom Holland, he's a historian from the UK, and he released a book called Dominion. And in that book, he says much of the, much of the anger people have against Christians come from moral categories that Jesus gave us. It's quite a profound thought. Much of the reason people want to disbelieve in God is because they see in Jesus, people who, Jesus' followers, people who aren't like Jesus. And what's that tell us? It tells us not that Jesus is wrong, not that Jesus is unbelievable, not that Jesus has failed us, but just those that who are broken who follow after him have. Um, a few years ago, the Center for Public Christianity down in Sydney, they released a documentary called For the Love of God, Why the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Thought. And they just paint this really honest and beautiful picture that the church has built hospices and hospitals and started charities and done incredible work, particularly in developing countries. But they've also gotten into bed with colonialism. They've also extended the reign of slavery. They've also done a whole host of things for which we should drop our heads in shame and say sorry and feel bad about. But the vision is, and they painted this in the documentary, that in Jesus' life, he wrote us a symphony, a beautiful symphony, And Christians have played it better or worse throughout the generations. But you wouldn't judge a symphony on how badly it was played by an amateur. And so don't judge Jesus by Christians. Judge Christians by Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our King. Call us higher. That's good for us and good for the world. And thirdly, don't fall for the trap. The trap would be thinking that the church is so far gone that it's of no use to partner with God to see it flourish. But here's the bottom line. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church the way a husband who is faithful loves a wayward bride. That's the kind of love. It's a pursuing love. It's a ravenous love. It's a costly love. And Jesus isn't done with the church. He's not done with this church. He's not done with any church. Because his goal is that by the end of time, he would see the church radiant, beautiful, like him in his goodness, in his beauty, and in his love. And so don't fall, the, fall for the trap for thinking that God's done with the church and that you can tap out and it means nothing. It means everything. God loves the church, and he wants to see it flourish. And the question you need to ask is, am I the kind of person he can use to help it get to where he wants it to be? Don't fall for the trap. We would be right to critique the church, but we'd be wrong to abandon it. 
Henry Nouwen, he was a Catholic priest, theologian, and writer. And in his book, Letters on the Spiritual Life, he addresses this tension really beautifully. He says, The church can be in the way of God, but it will never cease to be also on the way to God. This is the paradox of the religious life. When we give up the church completely, we'll end up by losing God. In many ways, we are the same, in the same situation Jesus was in during his life. He strongly criticized the religious leaders of his time, but continued to say that people should listen to their words without following their example. While Jesus was very critical of the religious institutions of his time, he never suggested that people could do without them. What's his point? His point is this, that you cannot answer the call to discipleship without actively participating in this broken community. You can't. It's impossible. It's a misnomer. It's an exercise in missing the point. The church can be in the way of God, but it will never cease also to be the way to God. God has a beautiful vision for broken people. He has got an extraordinary horizon for a very ordinary community. Paul He's a realist about where we're at, but he's a visionary about who we're becoming. And here's what this invites each of us to do. Partner with him to help this family become all that it could be. We need to know the deep bond of family that unites us, and we need a realistic evaluation of who we all are, why, so that slowly but surely, by God's Spirit, In God's grace, we might become the community that Paul encourages us to. And so to finish, I thought I might just read the rest of chapter 12. We literally unpacked verse 1 and the assumptions of Paul, and that for me took reading a bunch more of the New Testament. But I want to read now just this beautiful vision. And when you hear this, don't think of this as a clobbering over the head for what you're not. We know what we're not. Just think of this as wind for the sails of who we're becoming by God's Spirit. And so I want to read Romans 12, verses 1, sorry, verses 3 through to 21. Paul writes this to the church. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Just as I read these next words, I just encourage you to close your eyes and just get a picture of where God's taking us, where God wants to take the global church and how our local church might participate in that. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's 
wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a vision. By God's grace, I pray we, New Life, as a family, would embody and inhabit and grow in this vision. What a vision. One of the ways we like to outwork this vision at New Life, I'm just going to leave that there actually, is by experiencing more intimate, more intentional relationship and community in a thing we call small groups. And I thought, what a beautiful and tangible way just to give each of us here a window into what small groups are and the kinds of things we learn and are frustrated by and experience in a small, more intentional experience of community. And so to do that, I actually wanted to finish and open up a response time where we hear from two of our wonderful small group leaders. Aaron's got some stools. And so as as I'm setting that up, I just want to invite Sandra and... Maurice to the stage, and as they come up, give them a round of applause. Um, I'll just get you guys some microphones. Thanks, team. Wonderful. So I've got with me here Sandra and Maurice, and two wonderful, valued, and I really have come to love you guys, respected members of our community, and you're also small group leaders. So I've got some questions for you, um, but why don't you just tell us where home is, and uh, I'll get these questions up. A lot of you know where we live, (laughs) (laughs) and you're probably jealous that you didn't come to our house last night, um, because we could actually look down on the... Fireworks. (laughs) Fireworks. <laughs> so we live in the Meriton Tower in Herschel Street. And, um, and yeah, one of our visions with our small group is that people could actually just come from local. So if you live in the city and you're not in a small group yet, um, we're just handy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interview over. That's what we wanted. No, I'm just kidding. That's awesome. Um, Sandra and Maurice, how long have you led a small group for? We've actually led only for a few months here in the church. We actually um, went through the Alpha course in the earlier part of the year, the in-person one, and then we collected those people that were in that small group and um, invited them into a small group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, um, so it's only been a few months. Yeah. Um, but prior to that, we've, I mean, we've been around a little while um, in church, and so we've probably been leading small groups for about 20 years, on and off, and we started with Alpha, actually, way oh, back wow. in the beginning. Yeah. Okay, wow, that's awesome. I love all the Alpha plugs, too. <laughs> alpha. Um, and uh, why do you go to the trouble of leading a small group? It's not easy. Why do you go to the trouble? I found the question really interesting because of the word trouble, mm. and I got stuck on that, <laughs> because it's not really trouble, but... There is inconvenience, to be honest, Mm. and uh, I guess as Sandra made reference, we've been around the trap a little bit, but we've come to realise that I guess blessing and breakthrough and meaningful connection is often found on the other side of inconvenience, and um, Mm. it's a privilege uh, to invest 
um, I guess to have an opportunity to find out what our giftings are and what others are mm. um, and uh, find out what your giftings are not <laughs> if that makes sense but it's also I guess um, it's doing it to invest in something bigger mm. yeah awesome great I'm going to ask you to quote me that line from earlier so will the rest of the church um, what do you love about leading a small group um, I'm going to answer that one. Um, one of the main things I really love is that as much as you can have a plan, and this is, I'm probably speaking to small group leaders a little bit, as much as you can have your plan, just allow God to have his way because he's got a, a better, bigger plan around what you've planned. And I love seeing what he does in a small group. It's very exciting. Um, but also, small group is a place to belong, and it's not just about people that are coming to the group, it's us as well. It's a place for us to belong as well. We don't have a lot of family here, so for us, that's been really awesome. Um, that whole sense of family is, is very true. Um, I do have a few things, but I can't remember them without looking at my notes. Um, Oh, one of the things I wanted to say is, I don't know, some of you may have heard of this, like, um, I can't do this without. So think of a triangle. <laughs> yeah, I can, I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, okay, hold the triangle. So at the top, you've got God, and in each corner is a person. Now, this could be husband or wife, it could be um, friends, any, any relationship. And then the closer each person gets to God, then the closer they get together as they go up so you know it's yeah oh thank you <laughs> it's uh it's very true and um we've found that that's held us together actually a lot of times and just a little marriage thing here you know going through the rough rough times um if you're looking at each other sometimes you go what the heck but if, if you're looking to God, you go, okay, God, you brought us together. There's a way through this. So I'm just looking at you because you, I need your answer. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Awesome. Oh, I've got more. But <laughs> I, I believe you. <laughs> How much oh. time we got? <laughs> oh, we, um, maybe I'll let you answer the next question if you want to share one of your previous thoughts. But both of you, uh, I would love to invite both of you to answer this next question. I'm not sure what you've scripted, but... Yeah. What have you learnt in leading a small group? <laughs> I was 12 when Star Wars first came out. And, uh, Come on. And I love Star Wars. And there was a later movie that you'll remember it. And there's this, they're going underwater. And one of the guys says, there's always a bigger fish. And one of the things we've learnt about, you know, where is he going? Um, <laughs> But the thing we've learned about uh, Life Group is there's always a bigger story and there is always a bigger picture. Um, and uh, it's not necessarily about the program. Mm. It is actually about the people mm. and the meaningful connections. And we get it wrong and we often do. Mm. Um, but I think because of the bigger picture, and I'm probably going to misquote something from scripture, but that's okay. Um, you know the story where Paul says he plants in Apollos waters and God brings the increase. We see ourselves and our life group as watering. And we may not see it next week or three weeks later or even two years later. People may move, move on. But I know for me, when I was going through life groups or small groups, 
sometimes I'm in the middle of something and I go, I remember when so-and-so, and that was water on my growth. So you don't need to know all the answers. Um, I'll tell you one thing we've learned. Um, we've learned that we often compete to lead. <laughs> and the way that I lead is not the way Sandra leads, I have to be honest. However, I guess one of the good things about doing it for a while is you actually start to learn to value uh, the other and the other's giftings and be able to come alongside and support and strengthen. And when I know what her strengths are and she knows what mine are and I know when she feels a little bit lost and I know how to come in in the same way that she does as well. So, um, Oh, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess if I had to say one thing, and I've said a few things, actually people really matter. Yeah. Actually, people really valuable and they really really matter yeah. mm. Amen Sorry, I'm just going to add please <laughs> so I always have to have the last say um, but just seriously Jesus wants to know you yeah. and um, that's what he longs for he wants to lo- he longs to know you and he longs for you to know others mm. um, because it's in that place of vulnerability that he can actually grow you and heal you yeah so yeah amen beautiful oh amen yeah god wants to know you and people matter i'd love to finish on that note well thank you sandra maurice why don't you grab a seat give them a round of applause and say well down if you are interested in a small group come and chat with our host team scan the QR code, follow the links and the prompts. There's a few things that we'd love to know about you to invite you to do that more meaningfully and helpfully, especially as you, if you might be new and want to discern whether New Life Brisbane is going to be home for you. Um, but don't miss out and don't settle for not doing life meaningfully and intentionally and intimately with people in this community. And small groups is a great way to do that. I want to pray for small groups, but I also want to pray for this church. So as we jump into worship, why don't you stand to your feet and I'll pray as the band comes up and leads us in worship. Father God, thank you so much that you've adopted us. And God, I just want to say that again because I do not want to miss that. Thank you for adopting us, King Jesus, making us your children, turning family from those of the most unlikely of places bringing unity out of such a wealth of diversity and giving yourself a people who wouldn't just represent you to the world would be, but would be known and know one another, love and be loved, all in a bid to become more like Jesus for our joy, your glory and the sake of the world. So Holy Spirit, make us family. Would we pay the cost to see this community become all that it could be by your power. Lord, I want to pray for small groups in our community. I pray, Lord, that they would know a level of love with one another, a level of vulnerability with one another. And Lord, a level of taking seriously your scriptures and being formed and shaped and thinking rightly after you, God. But I ask, Father, that our small groups might know your presence, might know your power, might know your leading and might know the fundamental 
fact that people matter and Jesus wants to know us and he wants to be known by us. So we just thank you for this, God. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.